Chapter Seventy, Part Three of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Seventy. Final Settlement of the Ecclesiastical State, Part Three. Without drawing his sword, Count Pepin restored the aristocracy and the church. Three senators were chosen, and the legate, assuming the first rank, accepted his two colleagues from the rival families of Colonna and Orsini. The acts of the tribune were abolished, his head was proscribed, yet such was the terror of his name that the barons hesitated three days before they would trust themselves in the city, and Rienzi was left above a month in the castle of St. Angelo, from whence he peaceably withdrew, after labouring without effect, to revive the affection and courage of the Romans. The vision of freedom and empire had vanished. Their fallen spirit would have acquiesced in servitude, had it been smoothed by tranquillity and order, and it was scarcely observed that the new senators derived their authority from the apostolic see, that four cardinals were appointed to reform with dictatorial power the state of the republic. Rome was again agitated by the bloody feuds of the barons, who detested each other and despised the commons. Their hostile fortresses, both in town and country, again rose, and were again demolished. And the peaceful citizens, a flock of sheep, were devoured, says the Florentine historian, by these rapacious wolves. But when their pride and avarice had exhausted the patience of the Romans, a confraternity of the Virgin Mary protected or avenged the Republic. The bell of the Capitol was again tolled, the nobles in arms trembled in the presence of an unarmed multitude, and of the two senators, Colonna escaped from the window of the palace, and Ursini was stoned at the foot of the altar. The dangerous office of tribune was successively occupied by two plebeians, Ceroni and Baroncelli. The mildness of Ceroni was unequal to the times, and after a faint struggle he retired with a fair reputation and a decent fortune to the comforts of rural life. Devoid of eloquence or genius, Baroncelli was distinguished by a resolute spirit. He spoke the language of a patriot, and trod in the footsteps of tyrants. His suspicion was a sentence of death, and his own death was the reward of his cruelties. Amidst the public misfortunes the faults of Rienzi were forgotten, and the Romans sighed for the peace and prosperity of their good estate. After an exile of seven years, the first deliverer was again restored to his country. In the disguise of a monk or a pilgrim, he escaped from the castle of St. Angelo, implored the friendship of the King of Hungary at Naples, tempted the ambition of every bold adventurer, mingled at Rome with the pilgrims of the Jubilee, lay concealed among the hermits of the Apennine, and wandered through the cities of Italy, Germany, and Bohemia. His person was invisible, his name was yet formidable, and the anxiety of the court of Avignon supposes and even magnifies his personal merit. The emperor, Charles IV, gave audience to a stranger who frankly revealed himself as the tribune of the Republic, and astonished an assembly of ambassadors and princes by the eloquence of a patriot and the visions of a prophet the downfall of tyranny, and the kingdom of the Holy Ghost. Whatever had been his hopes, 
Rienzi found himself a captive, but he supported a character of independence and dignity, and obeyed, as his own choice, the irresistible summons of the supreme pontiff. The zeal of Petrarch, which had been cooled by the unworthy conduct, was rekindled by the sufferings and the presence of his friend, and he boldly complains of the times in which the saviour of Rome was delivered by her emperor into the hands of her bishop. Rienzi was transported slowly, but in safe custody, from Prague to Avignon. His entrance into the city was that of a malefactor. In his prison he was chained by the leg, and four cardinals were named to inquire into the crimes of heresy and rebellion. But his trial and condemnation would have involved some questions which it was more prudent to leave under the veil of mystery, the temporal supremacy of the popes, the duty of residence, the civil and ecclesiastical privileges of the clergy and people of Rome. The reigning pontiff well deserved the appellation of Clement. The strange vicissitudes and magnanimous spirit of the captive excited his pity and esteem, and Petrarch believes that he respected in the hero the name and sacred character of a poet. Rienzi was indulged with an easy confinement and the use of books, and in the assiduous study of Livy and the Bible he sought the cause and the consolation of his misfortunes. The succeeding pontificate of Innocent VI opened a new prospect of his deliverance and restoration, and the court of Avignon was persuaded that the successful rebel could alone appease and reform the anarchy of the metropolis. After a solemn profession of fidelity, the Roman tribune was sent into Italy with the title of senator, but the death of Baroncelli appeared to supersede the use of his mission, and the legate, Cardinal Albornoz, a consummate statesman, allowed him, with reluctance and without aid, to undertake the perilous experiment. His first reception was equal to his wishes. The day of his entrance was a public festival, and his eloquence and authority revived the laws of the good estate. But this momentary sunshine was soon clouded by his own vices and those of the people. In the capital he might often regret the prison of Avignon, and after a second administration of four months, Rienzi was massacred in a tumult which had been fermented by the Roman barons. In the society of the Germans and Bohemians he is said to have contracted the habits of intemperance and cruelty. Adversity had chilled his enthusiasm without fortifying his reason or virtue, and that youthful hope, that lively assurance which is the pledge of success, was now succeeded by the cold impotence of distrust and despair. The tribune had reigned with absolute dominion, by the choice and in the hearts of the Romans. The senator was the servile minister of a foreign court, and while he was suspected by the people, he was abandoned by the prince. The legate Albornoz, who seemed desirous of his ruin, inflexibly refused all supplies of men and money. A faithful subject could no longer presume to touch the revenues of the apostolical chamber, and the first idea of a tax was the signal of clamour and sedition. Even his justice was tainted with the guilt or reproach of selfish cruelty. The most virtuous citizen of Rome was sacrificed to his jealousy, and in the execution of a public robber, from whose purse he had been assisted, the magistrate too much forgot, or too much remembered, the obligations of the debtor. A civil war exhausted his treasures and the patience of the city. 
the Colonna maintained their hostile station at Palestrina, and his mercenaries soon despised a leader whose ignorance and fear were envious of all subordinate merit. In the death, as in the life of Rienzi, the hero and the coward were strangely mingled. When the capital was invested by a furious multitude, when he was basely deserted by his civil and military servants, the intrepid senator, waving the banner of liberty, presented himself on the balcony, addressed his eloquence to the various passions of the Romans, and laboured to persuade them that in the same cause himself and the Republic must either stand or fall. His oration was interrupted by a volley of imprecations and stones, and after an arrow had transpierced his hand, he sunk into abject despair and fled weeping to the inner chambers, from whence he was let down by a sheet before the windows of the prison. Destitute of aid or hope, he was besieged till the evening. The doors of the capital were destroyed with axes and fire, and while the senator attempted to escape in a plebeian habit, he was discovered and dragged to the platform of the palace, the fatal scene of his judgments and executions. A whole hour, without voice or motion, he stood amidst the multitude, half naked and half dead. Their rage was hushed into curiosity and wonder. The last feelings of reverence and compassion yet struggled in his favour, and they might have prevailed if a bold assassin had not plunged a dagger in his breast. He fell senseless with the first stroke. The impotent revenge of his enemies inflicted a thousand wounds, and the senator's body was abandoned to the dogs, to the Jews, and to the flames. Posterity will compare the virtues and failings of this extraordinary man, but in a long period of anarchy and servitude, the name of Rienzi has often been celebrated as the deliverer of his country, and the last of the Roman patriots. The first and most generous wish of Petrarch was the restoration of a free republic, but after the exile and death of his plebeian hero, he turned his eyes from the tribune to the king of the Romans. The capital was yet stained with the blood of Rienzi, when Charles the Fourth descended from the Alps to obtain the Italian and imperial crowns. In his passage through Milan, he received the visit and repaid the flattery of the poet laureate, accepted a medal of Augustus, and promised without a smile to imitate the founder of the Roman monarchy. A false application of the name and maxims of antiquity was the source of the hopes and disappointments of Petrarch. Yet he could not overlook the difference of times and characters, the immeasurable distance between the first Caesars and a Bohemian prince, who by the favour of the clergy had been elected the titular head of the German aristocracy. Instead of restoring to Rome her glory and her provinces, he had bound himself by a secret treaty with the Pope to evacuate the city on the day of his coronation, and his shameful retreat was pursued by the reproaches of the patriot bard. After the loss of liberty and empire, his third and more humble wish was to reconcile the shepherd with his flock, to recall the Roman bishop to his ancient and peculiar diocese. In the fervour of youth, with the authority of age, Petrarch addressed his exhortations to five successive popes, and his eloquence was always inspired by the enthusiasm of sentiment and the freedom of language. 
The son of a citizen of Florence invariably preferred the country of his birth to that of his education, and Italy, in his eyes, was the queen and garden of the world. Amidst her domestic factions she was doubtless superior to France both in art and science, in wealth and politeness, but the difference could scarcely support the epithet of barbarous, which he promiscuously bestows on the countries beyond the Alps. Avignon, the mystic Babylon, the sink of vice and corruption, was the object of hatred and contempt. But he forgets that her scandalous vices were not the growth of the soil, and that in every residence they would adhere to the power and luxury of the papal court. He confesses that the successor of St. Peter is the bishop of the universal church, yet it was not on the banks of the Rhone, but of the Tiber, that the apostle had fixed his everlasting throne. And while every city in the Christian world was blessed with a bishop, the metropolis alone was desolate and forlorn. Since the removal of the Holy See, the sacred buildings of the Lateran and the Vatican, their altars and their saints, were left in a state of poverty and decay, and Rome was often painted under the image of a disconsolate matron, as if the wandering husband could be reclaimed by the homely portrait of the age and infirmities of his weeping spouse. But the cloud which hung over the seven hills would be dispelled by the presence of their lawful sovereign. Eternal fame, the prosperity of Rome, and the peace of Italy, would be the recompense of the Pope who should dare to embrace this generous resolution. Of the five whom Petrarch exhorted, the three first, John the twenty-second, Benedict the twelfth, and Clement the sixth, were importuned or amused by the boldness of the orator. But the memorable change which had been attempted by Urban the fifth was finally accomplished by Gregory the eleventh. The execution of their design was opposed by weighty and almost insuperable obstacles. A king of France, who has deserved the epithet of wise, was unwilling to release them from a local dependence. The cardinals, for the most part his subjects, were attached to the language, manners, and climate of Avignon, to their stately palaces, above all to the wines of Burgundy. In their eyes Italy was foreign or hostile, and they reluctantly embarked at Marseilles, as if they had been sold or banished into the land of the Saracens. Urban V resided three years in the Vatican with safety and honour, his sanctity was protected by a guard of two thousand horse, and the King of Cyprus, the Queen of Naples, and the Emperors of the East and West devoutly saluted their common father in the chair of St. Peter. But the joy of Petrarch and the Italians was soon turned into grief and indignation. Some reasons of public or private moment, his own impatience or the prayers of the Cardinals, recalled Urban to France and the approaching election was saved from the tyrannic patriotism of the Romans. The powers of heaven were interested in their cause. Bridget of Sweden, a saint and pilgrim, disapproved the return, and foretold the death of Urban V. The migration of Gregory XI was encouraged by St. Catherine of Siena, the spouse of Christ and ambassadress of the Florentines, and the popes themselves, the great masters of human credulity, appear to have listened to these visionary females. Yet those celestial admonitions were supported by some arguments of temporal policy. The residents of Avignon had been invaded by hostile violence. At the head of thirty thousand robbers, 
a hero had extorted ransom and absolution from the vicar of Christ and the sacred college, and the maxim of the French warriors to spare the people and plunder the church was a new heresy of the most dangerous import. While the Pope was driven from Avignon, he was strenuously invited to Rome. The Senate and people acknowledged him as their lawful sovereign, and laid at his feet the keys of the gates, the bridges, and the fortresses, of the quarter at least beyond the Tiber. But this loyal offer was accompanied by a declaration, that they could no longer suffer the scandal and calamity of his absence, and that his obstinacy would finally provoke them to revive and assert the primitive right of election. The abbot of Mount Cassin had been consulted whether he would accept the triple crown from the clergy and people. "'I am a citizen of Rome,' replied the venerable ecclesiastic, "'and my first law is the voice of my country.' If superstition will interpret an untimely death, if the merit of counsels be judged from the event, the heavens may seem to frown on a measure of such apparent season and propriety. Gregory the Eleventh did not survive above fourteen months his return to the Vatican, and his decease was followed by the great schism of the West, which distracted the Latin Church above forty years. The Sacred College was then composed of twenty-two cardinals. Six of these had remained at Avignon. Eleven Frenchmen, one Spaniard, and four Italians entered the conclave in their usual form. Their choice was not yet limited to the purple, and their unanimous votes acquiesced in the Archbishop of Bari, a subject of Naples, conspicuous for his zeal and learning, who ascended the throne of St. Peter under the name of Urban VI. The epistle of the Sacred College affirms his free and regular election, which had been inspired, as usual, by the Holy Ghost. He was adored, invested, and crowned with the customary rites. His temporal authority was obeyed at Rome and Avignon, and his ecclesiastical supremacy was acknowledged in the Latin world. During several weeks the cardinals attended their new master with the fairest professions of attachment and loyalty, till the summer heats permitted a decent escape from the city. But as soon as they were united at Anagni and Fundi, in a place of security, they cast aside the mask, accused their own falsehood and hypocrisy, excommunicated the apostate and antichrist of Rome, and proceeded to a new election of Robert of Geneva, Clement the Seventh, whom they announced to the nations as the true and rightful vicar of Christ. Their first choice, an involuntary and illegal act, was annulled by fear of death and the menaces of the Romans, and their complaint is justified by the strong evidence of probability and fact. The twelve French cardinals, above two-thirds of the votes, were masters of the election, and whatever might be their provincial jealousies, it cannot fairly be presumed that they would have sacrificed their right and interest to a foreign candidate, who would never restore them to their native country. In the various and often inconsistent narratives, the shades of popular violence are more darkly or faintly coloured, but the licentiousness of the seditious Romans was inflamed by a sense of their privileges, and the danger of a second emigration. The conclave was intimidated by the shouts, and encompassed by the arms, of thirty thousand rebels. The bells of the capital and St. Peter's rang an alarm. Death, or an Italian pope, was the universal cry. The same threat was repeated by the twelve bannerets or chiefs of the quarters, in the form of charitable advice. 
Some preparations were made for burning the obstinate cardinals, and had they chosen a transalpine subject, it is probable that they would never have departed alive from the Vatican. The same constraint imposed the necessity of dissembling in the eyes of Rome and of the world. The pride and cruelty of Urban presented a more inevitable danger, and they soon discovered the features of the tyrant, who could walk in his garden and recite his breviary, while he heard from an adjacent chamber six cardinals groaning on the rack. His inflexible zeal, which loudly censured their luxury and vice, would have attached them to the stations and duties of their parishes at Rome, and had he not fatally delayed a new promotion, the French cardinals would have been reduced to a helpless minority in the sacred college. For these reasons, and the hope of repassing the Alps, they rashly violated the peace and unity of the Church, and the merits of their double choice are yet agitated in the Catholic schools. The vanity rather than the interest of the nation determined the court and the clergy of France. The states of Savoy, Sicily, Cyprus, Aragon, Castile, Navarre, and Scotland were inclined by their example and authority to the obedience of Clement the Seventh, and after his decease of Benedict the Thirteenth. Rome and the principal states of Italy, Germany, Portugal, England, the Low Countries, and the kingdoms of the North adhered to the prior election of Urban the Sixth, who was succeeded by Boniface the Ninth, Innocent the Seventh, and Gregory the Twelfth. From the banks of the Tiber and the Rhone, the hostile pontiffs encountered each other with the pen and the sword. The civil and ecclesiastical order of society was disturbed and the Romans had their full share of the mischiefs of which they may be arraigned as the primary authors. They had vainly flattered themselves with the hope of restoring the seat of the ecclesiastical monarchy, and of relieving their poverty with the tributes and offerings of the nations. But the separation of France and Spain diverted the stream of lucrative devotion, nor could the loss be compensated by the two jubilees which were crowded into the space of ten years. By the avocations of the schism, by foreign arms and popular tumults, Urban VI and his three successors were often compelled to interrupt their residence in the Vatican. The Colonna and Orsini still exercised their deadly feuds. The Bannerets of Rome asserted and abused the privileges of a republic. The Vicars of Christ, who had levied a military force, chastised their rebellion with the gibbet, the sword and the dagger and, in a friendly conference, eleven deputies of the people were perfidiously murdered and cast into the street. Since the invasion of Robert the Norman, the Romans had pursued their domestic quarrels without the dangerous interposition of a stranger. But in the disorders of the schism, an aspiring neighbour, Ladislaus, king of Naples, alternately supported and betrayed the Pope and the people. By the former he was declared Gonfalonier, or general of the church, while the latter submitted to his choice the nomination of their magistrates. Besieging Rome by land and water, he thrice entered the gates as a barbarian conqueror, profaned the altars, violated the virgins, pillaged the merchants, performed his devotions at St. Peter's, and left a garrison in the castle of St. Angelo. His arms were sometimes unfortunate, and to a delay of three days he was indebted for his life and crown. But Ladislaus triumphed in his turn, and it was only his premature death that could save the metropolis and the ecclesiastical state from the ambitious conqueror, who had assumed the title, or at least the powers, of King of Rome.
I have not undertaken the ecclesiastical history of the schism, but Rome, the object of these last chapters, is deeply interested in the disputed succession of her sovereigns. The first councils for the peace and union of Christendom arose from the University of Paris, from the faculty of the Sorbonne, whose doctors were esteemed, at least in the Gallican Church, as the most consummate masters of theological science. Prudently waiving all invidious inquiry into the origin and merits of the dispute, they proposed, as a healing measure, that the two pretenders of Rome and Avignon should abdicate at the same time, after qualifying the cardinals of the adverse factions to join in a legitimate election, and that the nations should subtract their obedience, if either of the competitor preferred his own interest to that of the public. At each vacancy these physicians of the church deprecated the mischiefs of a hasty choice, but the policy of the conclave and the ambition of its members were deaf to reason and entreaties, and whatsoever promises were made, the Pope could never be bound by the oaths of the Cardinal. During fifteen years the pacific designs of the university were eluded by the arts of the rival pontiffs, the scruples or passions of their adherents, and the vicissitudes of French factions that ruled the insanity of Charles VI. At length a vigorous resolution was embraced, and a solemn embassy of the titular Patriarch of Alexandria, two archbishops, five bishops, five abbots, three knights, and twenty doctors, was sent to the courts of Avignon and Rome to require, in the name of the Church and King, the abdication of the two pretenders of Peter de Luna, who styled himself Benedict the Thirteenth, and of Angelo Corario, who assumed the name of Gregory the Twelfth. For the ancient honour of Rome, and the success of their commission, the ambassadors solicited a conference with the magistrates of the city, whom they gratified by a positive declaration that the most Christian king did not entertain a wish of transporting the Holy See from the Vatican, which he considered as the genuine and proper seat of the successor of St. Peter. In the name of the Senate and the people, an eloquent Roman asserted their desire to cooperate in the union of the Church, deplored the temporal and spiritual calamities of the long schism, and requested the protection of France against the arms of the King of Naples. The answers of Benedict and Gregory were alike edifying and alike deceitful and in evading the demand of their abdication, the two rivals were animated by a common spirit. They agreed on the necessity of a previous interview, but the time, the place, and the manner could never be ascertained by mutual consent. If the one advances, says a servant of Gregory, the other retreats. The one appears an animal fearful of the land, the other a creature apprehensive of the water, and thus for a short remnant of life and power, will these aged priests endanger the peace and salvation of the Christian world? The Christian world was at length provoked by their obstinacy and fraud. They were deserted by their cardinals, who embraced each other as friends and colleagues, and their revolt was supported by a numerous assembly of prelates and ambassadors. With equal justice the Council of Pisa deposed the popes of Rome and Avignon. The conclave was unanimous in the choice of Alexander V., and his vacant seat was soon filled by a similar election of John the Twenty-Third, the most profligate of mankind. But instead of extinguishing the schism, the rashness of the French and Italians had given a third pretender to the chair of St. Peter. Such new claims of the synod and conclave were disputed. 
three kings of Germany, Hungary, and Naples adhered to the cause of Gregory the Twelfth, and Benedict the Thirteenth, himself a Spaniard, was acknowledged by the devotion and patriotism of that powerful nation. The rash proceedings of Pisa were corrected by the Council of Constance. The Emperor Sigismund acted a conspicuous part as the advocate or protector of the Catholic Church, and the number and weight of civil and ecclesiastical members might seem to constitute the States-General of Europe. Of the three popes, John the Twenty-Third was the first victim. He fled, and was brought back a prisoner. The most scandalous charges were suppressed. The Vicar of Christ was only accused of piracy, murder, rape, sodomy, and incest. And after subscribing his own condemnation, he expiated in prison the imprudence of trusting his person to a free city beyond the Alps. Gregory the Twelfth, whose obedience was reduced to the narrow precincts of Rimini, descended with more honour from the throne, and his ambassador convened the session, in which he renounced the title and authority of lawful pope. To vanquish the obstinacy of Benedict the Thirteenth or his adherents, the emperor in person undertook a journey from Constance to Perpignan. The kings of Castile, Aragon, Navarre, and Scotland obtained an equal and honourable treaty. With the concurrence of the Spaniards, Benedict was deposed by the council. But the harmless old man was left in a solitary castle to excommunicate twice each day the rebel kingdoms which had deserted his cause. After thus eradicating the remains of the schism, the Synod of Constance proceeded with slow and cautious steps to elect the sovereign of Rome and the head of the church. On this momentous occasion the college of twenty-three cardinals was fortified with thirty deputies, six of whom were chosen in each of the five great nations of Christendom, the Italian, the German, the French, the Spanish, and the English. The interference of strangers was softened by their generous preference of an Italian and a Roman, and the hereditary as well as personal merit of Otto Colonna recommended him to the conclave. Rome accepted with joy and obedience the noblest of her sons, the ecclesiastical state was defended by his powerful family, and the elevation of Martin V is the era of the restoration and establishment of the popes in the Vatican. End of chapter 70, part 3